Welcome to Breast Cancer Update for Surgeons. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Terry King, and to begin, she commented on where we are today on MRI imaging of the breast. So MRI is a very attractive tool for screening because we know it does have increased sensitivity when compared to mammography alone or even mammography and ultrasound. But of course, the drawbacks with MRI are its lack of specificity. So when we use it for screening, I think it's really important that we target it to the appropriate audiences, those who are at increased risk for developing breast cancer, where the likelihood of having a true finding is going to outweigh the likelihood of having a false positive finding, thus leading to an unnecessary biopsy. You know, there's lots of literature demonstrating the value of MRI screening in women at the highest risk for breast cancer, those with BRCA mutations, for example. And there's been a lot of speculation that women with lobular carcinoma in situ, given their increased risk, that they would also benefit from MRI screening. But what I think we're beginning to understand more and more about breast cancers, that the biology of the breast cancers that develop are not only important when we make our treatment decisions, but they're probably also important when we make our screening recommendations. And so we were able to show in a large population of women that we follow at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with LCIS, we were able to show that actually routine use of MRI screening in that population did not lead to an increased cancer detection rate. And I believe that is, again, Because of the biology of the breast cancers that women with LCS develop, they develop low-grade ER-positive breast cancers, and I don't think we really need MRI to find those cancers. I think those cancers show up quite well on our conventional imaging, whereas some of the cancers that develop in BRCA mutation carriers are quite difficult to see on conventional imaging, and therefore MRI does add value in that setting. Could you talk a little bit more about what kinds of cancers phenotypically are seen well on MR as opposed to not seen well? Well, we learned from the BRCA population that the cancers that they developed, particularly the BRCA1 population that develops the triple negative breast cancers, we know that they often present in the interval between routine mammographic screening. A woman can have a normal mammogram in December and come in in June with a two centimeter palpable mass in the breast. Those are the ones that were missing on mammography that MRI has demonstrated to have increased sensitivity in identifying. So the biology of those cancers, there's just something going on where they're not changing the mammographic appearance of the breast until they're quite large, and we can see those on MRI at a smaller size. Certainly there are plenty triple negative breast cancers that we can see on mammography as well, but when we're really trying to focus our screening to that high-risk group, the BRCA population is the one that has yielded the highest value for us. And the other high-risk groups, such as women with LCIS or women with atypia, we've not really been able to demonstrate that we really need MRI to identify those cancers. I think that ER-positive tumors are more likely to calcify, so they are more likely to be seen on mammography. They're more likely to be associated with DCIS, again, so can be identified on mammography. So if you're really looking at what is the true value of the added imaging, you just may not need the MRI to find that lower-grade ER-positive breast cancer. So a few other clinical scenarios in terms of MRI. What about DCIS? 
Well, there's been a lot of debate regarding the value of MRI for DCIS. Originally, you know, it was felt that we probably weren't going to see it very well. Then this pendulum swung the other way, and people started reporting that they were finding a lot of DCIS. One of my colleagues, Dr. Kimberly Van Zee and Melissa Paluski, they've recently published a very large series with our experience of MRI in DCIS for women undergoing breast conservation therapy. And using MRI in the preoperative setting did not improve our ability to obtain negative margins in the setting of breast conservation for DCIS. And it was no better than standard imaging in determining the size of the index lesion. So I think the jury's still really out on the true value of MRI in DCIS. We have not been able to demonstrate a benefit. What about in patients with occult primary breast cancers? Absolutely. The role of MRI in patients with occult primary tumors is well-established, and the utility of MRI in this setting has really allowed a lot of women to preserve their breasts, where otherwise, in the setting of occult cancer, physicians were reluctant to offer women conservative therapy. Now, with MRI, we are often able to identify that underlying occult lesion. Women can undergo breast conservation with a high degree of success. And when the MRI is truly negative, one can feel comfortable that that occult lesion is quite small and women can be offered whole breast radiation therapy as an alternative to mastectomy. How about with neoadjuvant chemotherapy? The use of MRI in patients receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy is really quite exciting. I think right now, I think it's actually one of the most relevant places that we can use MRI in the current treatment setting. We're using neoadjuvant therapy more commonly now because we understand that different molecular subtypes are likely to have a very high pathologic complete response rate. So we're able to downstage many more women to become candidates for breast conservation therapy by using appropriate targeted therapy in the neoadjuvant setting, such as anti-HER2 therapy. And so I think that what we will be seeing in the next five to 10 years is many more publications demonstrating the true value of MRI in the neoadjuvant setting. We really need to understand whether we can use it to predict response to therapy as an early tool, and we need to understand how often it enables us to select patients for breast conservation therapy. So finishing out on MR, in terms of specifically the use of MR in people getting neoadjuvant therapy, when exactly do you get it? And when do you see the patient? Do you see them during the neoadjuvant therapy, for example? If a patient presents to the surgical clinic as the first visit and we are considering neoadjuvant therapy either because of the receptor subtype or the tumor size or the clinical node status, we use MRI routinely only in those patients who we are attempting to downstage to conservation. If the patient is going to require a mastectomy, no matter what the treatment response is to neoadjuvant therapy, then really getting the MRI in that setting can be done for research purposes, academic purposes, but getting the MRI in that setting is not going to impact patient management. So we have decided as a group If the patient is not a candidate for downstaging, there's no role for MRI. But if the patient is a candidate for downstaging, we will get a pre-treatment MRI, and then we will also get a post-treatment MRI in order to make our final decision as to whether the patient can undergo lumpectomy or not. At our institution, we see patients prior to neoadjuvant chemotherapy so that we can make a combined decision with our medical oncologists whether we believe that that is the preferred approach. Also, it's important that we're able to document their clinical node status before they undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy because that's going to impact how we manage the nodes after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And then we see patients around their last or second-to-last treatment, again, to monitor their response and to plan for their surgical therapy. 
Do you see any potential value? And has I don't even know if this has really even been looked at in terms of doing neoadjuvant therapy on patients heading to mastectomy in terms of decreasing the margin positivity. I do find some value for myself at times when the patient has a significant tumor burden, you know, approaching the skin, for instance, or a significant nodal burden. I will often recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy in those cases, even though I'm still going to perform mastectomy. I'm not aware of any data that says that it improves margin status, but certainly intraoperatively you feel better knowing that that tumor is at least microscopically shrunken away from the skin. And it can often make the axillary node dissection a bit easier when you've been able to decrease that nodal burden within the axilla. And speaking of the issue of margin, of course, there's the big guidelines paper that came out I would like to get your thoughts on. But also, I see that you had a paper from the Annals of Surgical Oncology this year, Impact of Margin Assessment Method on Positive Margin Rate and Total Volumic Size. What did you look at there? Well, we've been interested in this at our institution for quite some time. Our pathologists have employed different methods of margin assessment over the years, and what we identified was that we have the lowest rates of margin positivity when the surgeons actually perform the individual cavity shave margins. So we perform our lumpectomy, that specimen is sent without any margin assessment, and then we take individual shaved margins from within the cavity, and we mark the final margin on each of those individual margins for pathologic analysis. When we compared different approaches over time, that gave us the lowest rate of margin positivity and did not significantly increase the volume of the lumpectomy cavity. Now, of course, that can be dependent from surgeon to surgeon, but obviously the ideal of conservation therapy is to maintain cosmesis of the breast, and so we could all have negative margins if we just took gigantic lumpectomies, but that's not the goal. So we really are trying to refine all the factors that go into affecting our rates of margin positivity, and it's not just surgical technique, but it's also pathologic technique. Any sense, or are there any data out there in terms of how surgeons are approaching this in clinical practice? There's a wide variety of the way surgeons approach margins in clinical practice. Some surgeons are comfortable inking the specimens themselves in the operating room. They have a good working relationship with their pathologist, and they feel comfortable providing that information. Other surgeons are still using a traditional approach of just orienting the lumpectomy specimen and letting their pathologist make the best decision. I really think it depends on the number of surgeons and the number of pathologists that you're dealing with and your comfort level that each individual knows what the other one is doing and how it's being interpreted. What were your thoughts about this consensus statement that came out? When I read it, there was a lot of stuff in there, but it seemed like it just came down to no ink on tumor, but you tell me. No, that's absolutely correct. You know, what we first learned from the NSABP trials of breast conservation was that no ink on tumor resulted in excellent long-term control and equal survival for women undergoing breast conservation as compared to mastectomy. And there have been a lot of ideas floating around in the last couple of decades that more must be better, that a wider margin would result in lower rates of in-breast recurrence. And that really just hasn't borne out in the literature. So this consensus statement was the result of a systematic review and meta-analysis of the literature, as well as a two-day conference where experts came together and really reviewed every piece of information that's out there, comparing more to less, looking at different patient populations, such as those with lobular cancer. 
younger women, et cetera, really trying to dig through the nitty-gritty to see if there was a population of women that benefited from a wider margin. And with the data that's available, we really cannot say that. It really seems like no tumor on ink is a perfectly reasonable margin. And until there's a group that's identified that is at a higher risk for recurrence, I do believe that that should be the standard. I'm trying to remember now, did they cover DCIS with that also? And was it the same recommendation? They, in fact, did not include pure DCIS in that analysis. But Dr. Morrow has obtained funding again. The original consensus for invasive cancer was funded by Susan G. Komen for the Cure. She has now obtained a second grant from Susan G. Komen for the Cure to put together a meta-analysis and consensus for the management of DCIS. So that will be forthcoming, and it should be very exciting. Your group's really had some fantastic papers recently. I wanted to ask you about another one I really liked. Axillary dissection can be avoided in the majority of clinically no negative patients undergoing breast conservation, again, from the annals of surgical oncology. I really love what you did in this study. Can you talk about it? Yes, thank you. Yes, that was very exciting for us. So we were very intrigued when the results of the ACOZOG Z11 study came out demonstrating that women with limited number of positive central nodes, meaning one or two positive central nodes, who were undergoing breast conservation therapy, the Z11 trial demonstrated that they did not benefit from additional axillary node surgery, that the rates of axillary recurrence were equally good and low in women who had axillary lymph node dissection as compared to those who had observation only. And so we were very excited by this finding and we were anxious to apply it to our patient population. And so that's exactly what we did. We prospectively identified all patients coming into our clinics who met eligibility criteria for the Z11 study. So that is anybody who had a clinical T1 and zero breast cancer, regardless of receptor subtype, regardless of age. We took all consecutive patients coming in who met those criteria and who were undergoing breast conservation therapy. We applied the Z11 criteria. We only returned to the operating room for axillary dissection in women who had three or more positive nodes. And what we demonstrated was, as you said, that we could actually spare axillary node dissection 84% of real-life women coming in with breast cancer. So it was a very important observation because there was a lot of criticism of Z11. People were reluctant to apply it to patient populations that they felt might be underrepresented in the original trial. They were reluctant to apply it to patient populations that they thought might have higher rates of recurrence, such as ER negative disease. But what we demonstrated was that the patients who were enrolled in the Z11 trial really are representative of real-world breast cancer patients, and we did not see any differences in our ability to apply the criteria across the spectrum of age or across the ER status. And we've been prospectively monitoring that data, and at this point we're about at median follow-up of almost two years, and we've not identified any axillary recurrences. So we're very excited about that. As long as we're talking about the axilla, we were talking about neoadjuvant therapy before, and I just want to ask you how you manage the axilla after they've had neoadjuvant therapy. In the two situations, and I know these are being addressed in trials too, I'm curious what you're doing in your practice and whether you're involved with any of these trials. Are the patient really who starts out with a positive node on biopsy, gets neoadjuvant therapy, and either continues to be positive after neoadjuvant therapy or converts to negative. How do you handle management of the axilla in those two situations? It's a very good question, and I think that our clinical practice has evolved over the last year, as I'm sure that others have as well, based on the recent literature. What we're doing right now is for women who start out clinically positive, 
and undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy, if they convert to clinically node negative, we are offering those women sentinel lymph node biopsy after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. During the sentinel node procedure, if we retrieve at least three nodes, and that means that we have mapping to at least three nodes, it's not just random sampling, but we really want to ensure that our mapping identifies at least three nodes. If all three of those nodes are negative on frozen section, then we have decided to accept that as a negative axilla, and we are not performing any additional axillary node surgery. What about radiation therapy? The radiation therapy recommendations are being made based on the traditional guidelines for PMRT. We are not adding an axillary field to the radiation treatment planning. And yes, you did mention that is a question that's being asked in a multi-institutional trial right now run through the RTOG. And we do not have that trial open, but we do have the companion trial open, which is for patients who remain node positive after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So if we are to identify on frozen section that the patient remains node positive, then those patients we are randomizing to either completion axillary node dissection or directed axillary RT as part of the Alliance randomized trial. And how about outside a trial setting? How do you handle that situation? Outside of the trial setting right now, we believe that for patients who remain clinically node positive after neoadjuvant therapy or for patients who are found to have a positive sentinel node after neoadjuvant therapy, we are doing complete axillary node dissection in those patients. And one of the things going to be really interesting to see in that trial is sort of what the long-term local complications are. Any predictions? You kind of, I would think that patients are going to do better with the radiation therapy, but what are your thoughts? Well, we know from the Amaros trial, which was very similar to Z11, one arm was randomized axillary node dissection and one arm was randomized axillary RT. And so we know from those data that the patients that were randomized to axillary RT had lower rates of lymphedema than the patients who were randomized to axillary node dissection. So I think that with respect to that specific complication, I do expect that radiation therapy will result in improved outcomes for patients. But what we don't know, I think, is the long-term sort of brachial plexus issues, how when we're adding this extra radiation fields, if we're also adding supraclavicular fields and so on, I think we're going to have to monitor those longer-term complication rates carefully. Have you seen patients with brachial plexus problems from radiation therapy in that situation? Thankfully, I've not seen patients with that problem from standard tangents or just an extra axillary field. Of course, in some patients that have had locally advanced cancers and have received you know, additional radiation therapy beyond the standard adjuvant treatment planning, we have seen that. So another really cool paper from the Annals of Surgical Oncology last December, radioactive seed localization compared to wire localization in breast-conserving surgery, initial six-month experience. Again, I thought it was a really cool paper. Thank you. Yes, we've adopted the radio seed localization technique with great enthusiasm. It's changed the way we practice. It's great for patients. It's great for physicians. It's great for operative room scheduling. You can put the radioactive seed in place very carefully, very easily with either ultrasound localization or stereotactic localization, depending on your target. And the patient can safely have that seed in place for one to two weeks prior to their surgical procedure. So it eliminates that morning scheduling of the patient's going first to mammography, having the wire localization placed, coming to the operating room, waiting to go into the operating room or getting lost in transport, as can happen in all of our hospitals. 
So it's nice for patients. They appreciate it. They don't have the wire sticking out of the breast. It's nice for surgeons because we know that our patients are ready to go on the morning of surgery when it's time to start operating. As far as our technical ability to remove the lesion, there is a small learning curve, but once you've done a couple of cases, it's very easy to perform the operation technically. And in that paper, as you said, we compared our first six-month experience, again, to make sure that our rates of margin positivity were not impacted by our localization technique to make sure that our you know, return to the operating room rates were similar and complications and so on and so forth. And we found that everything was really in favor of the seed approach. So this is a new technique for you? Well, it's a technique that we adopted about three years ago now. It was, I think, the first group in the United States that really has the biggest experience with it, I think, is actually the Mayo Clinic. They've been using it for quite some time. But we adopted it, again, I believe it's been about three years ago, and we don't want to go back to wires ever now. (laughs) Any sense about to what extent nationally this technique is being used right now? It's definitely catching on. We were the first group in Manhattan to adopt it, and I know that now they are also doing it at Cornell. Of course, one of our previous breast surgical fellows is on staff there, and so she brought the technique to Cornell. I know they're also using it at Mount Sinai. I'm not sure if they're using it downtown at Beth Israel or not, but across the country, more and more people are taking interest in it and using it. You said there's a learning curve. What is it that you have to learn? Well, when you have the wire localization, you have your mammogram, which shows the wire going into the breast, and you have some sense of the depth of the lesion within the breast when you're following the wire down. The wire has a reinforced portion the last couple of centimeters, and so you know that your target is down the wire at that reinforced portion. When you're using the probe to pick up the radio signal from the seed, you don't have the same visual as far as depth within the breast. And so you have to develop your own technique to determine at what depth in the breast you think your target truly is so that you're, again, minimizing the lumpectomy and not taking a bunch of tissue anteriorly that doesn't need to be removed. Interesting. Another paper I want to ask you about, should breast density influence patient selection for breast conservation? Again, Annals of Surgical Oncology. Yes, breast density is a hot topic. We have a law in New York State now, as do many other states, where women have to be informed of their breast density. And we all know for many reasons that dense breasts makes women nervous and physicians nervous that we may be missing something. We did notice when we looked at our experience in comparing mastectomy versus breast conservation rates in women with dense breasts, that women with dense breasts were more likely to undergo mastectomy. Again, probably a lot of personal biases in that decision. But when we looked at the tumor characteristics between women with dense breasts and non-dense breasts, the cancers that develop in women with dense breast tissue, again, were more likely to be ER-positive small, very treatable, curable cancers. And so I think we have this notion that dense breasts are scary and that we're going to miss a big, bad, ugly cancer in the dense breast. And that's just really not what our data demonstrates. The cancers that develop in women with dense breasts are just as easily treatable and curable as the cancers that develop in women with fatty breasts. And I guess as diagnosable? Well, that's a matter of debate. You know, we have many, many new imaging modalities that are coming down the road now to try to improve the sensitivity of mammography in dense breasts. By default, people have been using mammogram and ultrasound screening. 
to detect small masses, but we're very excited about some of these newer modalities such as contrast-enhanced mammography and tomosynthesis as potentially better tools to see through the density, so to speak, and improve our ability to detect cancers in those very dense breasts. So I also wanted to ask you about a paper from last San Antonio meeting concerning TBCRC013, a trial, a prospective analysis of the role of surgery in stage four breast cancer. Of course, we saw a couple of papers presented at San Antonio meeting on that issue. What did you present? I presented the results of a prospective registry study that we ran through the TBCRC, which stands for Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium. The role of surgery in the setting of de novo stage 4 breast cancer has been an interest of mine for many years, and I'd like to highlight Seema Khan's role in finally getting the prospective randomized trial open in the United States. But she and I were talking many years ago prior to the adoption or the acceptance of doing that trial, and we decided that we could collect some prospective data in the meantime while she was trying to get that trial started that may be valuable. So we opened this trial through the TBCRC. Again, it was a prospective registry. We recruited patients presenting with de novo stage 4 breast cancer and an intact primary tumor from 14 different sites around the United States. And we did not tell physicians what to do, but we asked physicians to discuss the role of surgery with patients after they'd received first-line systemic therapy. So we did not deviate from the standard of care. Patients received first-line systemic therapy. And if they had a either stable, a partial, or complete response to that therapy in their sites of distant disease, then we asked them to consider the role of surgery. And we basically documented what happened, how many women chose surgery, how many women did not. We collected quality of life information as well as outcome information. And so what we presented at San Antonio was really the early results of that trial. At a median follow-up of about two years, we were able to demonstrate that First of all, women in this country presenting with de novo stage 4 breast cancer are doing quite well. The two-year overall survival was uh, approximately 95%. So we have effective systemic therapies, and when they're used appropriately, women who are presenting with stage 4 disease have very good two-year overall survival. That sounds a lot better than the average woman with metastatic breast cancer. Well, it is, and you have to remember, because the average woman with metastatic breast cancer has a different disease biology. She's already failed one therapy. Her cancer has returned after receiving adjuvant therapy. And so I think we need to start looking at those differences a little bit more closely because de novo disease, untreated disease, likely will have a different natural history than somebody who's presenting with recurrent disease that has returned after therapy. We were not able to show any improvement in survival with the use of elective surgery in our registry study. However, it's very hard to improve upon 95% two-year overall survival. So we are continuing to follow those women with longer follow-up. We will see if surgery does have an impact for a subset of those women. It's important to highlight, as you said, at San Antonio last year, two different prospective randomized trials were presented, the trial from Turkey and the trial from India. Those studies were a little bit different than the trial ongoing in the United States, but they were randomized trials of the role of surgery. Both of those trials, when they were reported, both of them were reported as negative studies. There was no benefit to surgery for the primary tumor. 
but the outcomes, the results of those studies really highlight, I think, the difference between outcomes for women treated in the United States where we fortunately have access to therapies and our patients have access to therapies because the two-year overall survival or median survival in those two trials was less than two years. And so it really highlights the difference between our patients who have access to therapies like anti-HER2 therapy and anti-estrogen therapy, particularly for the women in India, their survivals were quite dismal compared to what we see in the United States. Any projections on when the U.S. study might be reporting? The accrual to the U.S. study is going fairly well at this point in time, although anybody listening, please continue to consider putting your patients on the study. I believe that the accrual is about 50% of the way through, so it will be several years before we have any results. But the fact that the two trials that were presented at San Antonio last year were both negative and, again, not reflective, I don't think, of the U.S. population, really still gives equipoise to this question and really, I hope, encourages physicians and patients to consider enrolling in the U.S. trial. Now, of course, I guess we should be clear, and I think Seema Khan, who discussed these two papers, brought this up, that we're not talking about somebody with a big tumor. We're worried about local control. This is a strategy to try to improve survival. That's absolutely correct. The number of women who are requiring palliative surgery in this setting is actually quite small. It was about 10% in the Indian trial, and in our own prospective registry, it was even lower. It was only about 2%. So the women who we're talking about are women who are presenting with stage 4 de novo breast cancer, who have the median tumor size that we've seen across all studies is around 3 centimeters. These women are offered upfront systemic chemotherapy or endocrine therapy based on the molecular subtype of their tumor. And if they have a response at the distant disease sites, they're then randomized to early local therapy or standard therapy, which reserves local therapy for palliation. Women who are randomized to early local therapy are required to undergo definitive local therapy just as they would in the adjuvant setting. So if a lumpectomy is performed, that is followed by whole restoration therapy. The axilla is evaluated as it would be in the adjuvant setting. And if a mastectomy is performed, PMRT is delivered just as it would be in the adjuvant setting. So we really are trying to demonstrate whether true, you know, optimal local control has a benefit in terms of survival in the setting of stage four disease. How does this play out in your own practice outside a trial setting? When we had the registry study open at our institution, we were having many conversations about elective surgery, but again, that was in the context of a registry. And about 50% of the patients that we approached in the registry did ultimately have elective surgery. Once that registry trial was closed and we opened the prospective randomized trial at our institution, we again, as a group, decided collectively that we were not going to perform elective surgery in this setting outside of the trial. We feel so strongly of the importance of the trial in truly answering this question, and so we do not offer elective surgery outside of the trial. Of course, if palliative surgery is needed or surgery for local control is needed, then we'll perform those procedures as we all would. But we really are trying to encourage patients and physicians to participate in this trial so that we can ultimately get the answer that we all need. It kind of seems intuitively like it must be maybe more tempting to do when you can do you know, fairly simple breast conservation Somehow the idea of doing a mastectomy in this situation seems like it may be more difficult to accept. 
I think many people agree with you. Many patients would agree with you. Sometimes they just you know, want the lump out. And if it's a simple procedure, it's easier for them to envision going through it. However, on the flip side of the coin, there are some women that want you to remove both breasts in this setting. They're convinced that more is better. And so you find yourself having the conversation, you know, going both ways and so important to try to educate women what we do and don't know about surgery in this setting to try to minimize any unnecessary morbidity that they may experience. When you see a patient like that, is the thought of cure in your mind? I believe that there are selective patients with metastatic disease that we will ultimately be able to cure. I do not think that surgery in the setting of metastatic disease has a large role in that right now, but I would love to see this be a positive trial, but I'm you know, holding out to see the true results. Well, I'm thinking more, not so much about the issue where surgery fits in here, but whether, and primarily this is obviously related to the systemic therapy, I would think is the question of, you know, in a patient who's never had systemic therapy, as you're saying, who presents with metastatic disease, I don't know, maybe HER2 positive, for example, I mean, is cure, you know, I've heard oncologists talking about taking out liver mets, for example, in this situation. Is that a rational thought? I do think that there will be subsets of patients, and HER2 is a very good example where there are some tumors that are exquisitely sensitive to the anti-HER2 therapies that we have available, and we've seen pathologic complete response rates in brain lesions that have been resected, in liver lesions that have been resected, and breast tumors that have been resected for patients who present with metastatic disease and receive anti-HER2 therapy. The ER-positive subtype, I think, will be a little bit more challenging. We know that those cancers can develop resistant subclones quite easily, and we'll have to keep looking for more anti-ER targeted therapies or better strategies for those women. And the triple negative group, we again, we know that there's some women with triple negative breast cancer who are, again, exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy, at least in the adjuvant setting. If a patient receives chemotherapy for triple negative breast cancer in the adjuvant setting and achieves that seven-year disease-free interval, it's very uncommon to see a recurrence of triple negative disease after that seven-year mark. So potentially, yes, there could be that woman who presents with untreated disease is exquisitely sensitive, and maybe we will be seeing cures in a small number of these women. So speaking of metastatic disease, you did a presentation at the ASCO meeting last year. When I saw the title, I was like, wow, that is a great idea, and had all these great hopes about it, but maybe it didn't quite pan out the way I had hoped it would. But in any event, it was a paper looking at the prognostic impact of the 21-gene recurrence score in patients with stage 4 disease. What is your report there, and what do you think it means? Well, that was one of the correlative science aims from the TBCRC registry study that we discussed earlier. And we asked the question, can we use the 21-gene recurrence score as a prognostic tool for women presenting with metastatic disease? And on an exploratory analysis, we asked if the score was predictive to therapy. Of course, that's where it has the most benefit for us in early-stage cancer is determining who's going to benefit from chemotherapy and who is not. So from a prognostic point of view, we were able to identify that the 21-junior current score was independently predictive of prognosis. Women obviously with the high score having a poor prognosis and women with the lower intermediate score. And on our exploratory analysis, there was certainly the suggestion that having a high recurrence score 
may reflect an underlying sort of decreased sensitivity to anti-estrogen therapy and that potentially those women should be treated with chemotherapy up front. We continue to look at that data and with longer follow-up, the results continue to be true and become even more compelling. And we are in discussions with the Alliance as far as trying to put through a prospective randomized trial using the recurrent score to identify women with high scores and then randomizing women with high-risk recurrent scores to upfront chemotherapy or upfront endocrine therapy to truly answer that question of whether the score can be used to predict resistance to endocrine therapy or response to chemotherapy, whichever way you want to look at it. So it's a difficult question to get at because when women present with metastatic disease, ER-positive metastatic disease, we're very comfortable offering them anti-endocrine therapy and it doesn't impact their quality of life. And we would be asking women to go on upfront chemotherapy, which is a little different than we're used to doing in ER-positive metastatic disease. So but we continue to try to push forward, and I hope that one day we will have this trial open, the prospective randomized trial, to truly ask the question of can we use this score in metastatic disease. Well, you would think that it would also be useful in the patient who has a low recurrence score. Well, I guess, you know, theoretically they're going to get hormone therapy anyhow, but there are situations where, you know, maybe there might be a decision between that. I'm happy to hear that there's interest in a trial. I kind of got the feeling that there was sort of disappointment in this kind of a strategy, although to me it made perfect sense. Well, there's critics on both sides. I think there is a lot of support for a trial, but there's some concern, as there should be, healthy concern about whether this is the right test to use or what's the right study design and so forth. So we continue to talk with all the players at the table and really try to come up with the best strategy moving forward, because I really do think that both clinicians and patients would benefit from some type of a tool to help them in this decision-making process in the metastatic setting. Because as you said, there can be times where physicians might be struggling between what to use first. Maybe it's traditionally we think of if they have visceral disease, maybe they should get chemotherapy first. If they have bone-only disease, maybe they should get endocrine therapy first. But that's probably not all there is to the story. There's probably a better way to make that decision. I've always been surprised that, you know, tests like the 21 during current score have been used more in the neoadjuvant setting. I know there's some data on that, but it doesn't seem like there's that much interest. And yet, you know, you just do the surgery and a couple months later you're using, it's the same biology. It seems like if you're not going to respond to chemo, you're not going to respond to chemo. If you're more sensitive to hormones, what difference does it make is this pre or post-op? And to me, the same logic should apply. Maybe it's more complicated in metastatic disease. Well, I think there are a couple of ongoing studies using the score in that setting, as you suggested. There are smaller studies, and I don't know the name off the top of my head, but I can tell you anecdotally that I, I'm not endorsing this or not, but anecdotally I do know that there are physicians in practice who do use it to help make that decision. Right. Yeah, there are papers out there looking at that, just sort of, you know, kind of muddling along. Mm -hmm. As long as we're talking about the 21 gene recurrence, I'm curious what your thoughts are about its use in DCIS. We saw some more data on ASCO, kind of another real-world analysis of how the DCIS, well, actually it's the 12 gene recurrence score specific to DCIS that's been looked at. What are your thoughts about that and where that might be heading or not heading? 
It's such an important area, our ability to predict which women with DCS will progress to invasive cancer or recur with invasive cancer is an area that we really do need a lot of attention and better strategies for managing the disease. I think that the Oncotype DX recurrence score for DCS is a great start in that direction. We have not adopted its use at Sloan Kettering. In our initial discussions with just the first presentation of the data, we just didn't feel that it was strong enough. We wanted to see a second data set to validate those results. And I don't recall the details of the presentation at ASCO, but it didn't cause us to change our minds. So we would love to see the research go forward. We'd love to see more effort in identifying which women with DCS really need maximum therapy and which could potentially have less. But I'm not sure that the Oncotype DS recurrence score is the answer to that decision-making process yet. Yeah, I think what they showed was just that it, you know, if you believe in it, which this group was following it, you know, they changed their decisions based on it in terms of radiation therapy. So it didn't really provide more, it was more sort of clinically how it was playing out, which I, I guess that's important to know that it did change it. And actually, I saw a letter from, we were talking about Mel Silverstein, I saw a letter from him, I think it was in cancer, you know, sort of reminding people that there's more to biology in terms of DCIS, and you have to consider margins, et cetera, et cetera, and not just, you know, the genomic profiles. I thought that was a, a good point. So let's go through these scenarios that you brought out, starting with the young woman. You have 30 years old here with a palpable mass in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast. Can you talk about sort of from a teaching point of view why you put this case together and what the points are? Sure. So she's a 30-year-old woman with a two-centimeter tumor, which is biopsy-proven to be an infiltrating duct carcinoma, which is ER-negative, PR-negative, and HER2-negative. And importantly, her mother also had a history of breast cancer diagnosed at the age of 35. So from a teaching point of view, it's important to recognize that triple-negative breast cancers are associated with BRCA1 mutations, particularly when these cancers occur in young women. We need to think about the possibility of an inherited predisposition. Her mother also had breast cancer. It makes you even more suspicious that there could be an inherited predisposition. So given the fact that there is a let's say 15 to 20% probability that she actually has a BRCA1 mutation, knowing that information up front could potentially impact your local therapy discussions with her. Young women have higher rates of local recurrence with conservation therapy when compared to their older counterparts, and particularly young women with triple negative disease have higher rates of local recurrence when compared to their older counterparts. But in the setting of a BRCA mutation, you would be much more concerned about her risk of a second primary in that breast and her risk of a contralateral breast cancer. And so while you may feel comfortable offering her conservation or mastectomy if she's BRCA negative, if she's BRCA positive, you may want to consider talking to her about bilateral mastectomy. So you wait for the BRCA testing before you make a decision? We are able to get expedited testing if we're using it periodiagnostically. So yes, so we could get her test result back in 10 days to two weeks and have our treatment plan laid out waiting for that test result and then move on to whichever approach we had. Alternatively, again, as we were talking about earlier, we know that a woman with a two centimeter triple negative breast cancer is going to get adjuvant systemic therapy. And so you could give her neoadjuvant therapy for her triple negative disease, and that would give you more time 
for her to undergo genetic testing and consider those testing results. If she came back BRCA negative, then it's highly likely that you would have downstaged her tumor so she could have a smaller lumpectomy than she could have at the outset. And if she comes back BRCA positive, then again, you can plan the appropriate treatment based on how she feels about that genetic test result. I do want to point out, though, that there is some concern that women, young women with triple negative breast cancer should not be offered breast conservation because of their higher rates of local recurrence. But young women with triple negative breast cancer have higher rates of local recurrence whether they undergo lumpectomy or whether they undergo mastectomy. So doing a mastectomy is not going to decrease her risk of local recurrence because that risk is truly based on the biology of her disease, not on the operation which we perform. You know, we were talking before about neoadjuvant therapy or not, and one of the things that sort of globally seemed really encouraging and yet somehow sort of petered out, and at least it seemed like a sort of people lost interest, is this concept of looking at the clinical response. Now, you know, this whole question of does PATH-CR, you know, predict a long-term outcome is one thing, but just the idea, and here you have this lady, you can either treat her now and see what happens to this two centimeter lesion, whether it goes away and whether it doesn't respond at all, or you can wait post-op and give her the same exact therapy adjuvantly and have no idea whether it benefited her. I guess somehow the science of it says it doesn't matter, but somehow it seems at a clinical intuitive level, maybe it would matter. Any thoughts about this? Well, I agree with you. There was a lot of hype around that concept for many years of being able to monitor response and potentially identifying tumors that were resistant. I think the problem lied in the fact that we were giving these women our quote-unquote first-line systemic therapy, the one that we thought worked the best. And so we were sort of left wringing our hands if we saw that the tumor wasn't responding. We really didn't know, well, what should we give them instead? And so outside of a clinical trial, that becomes very difficult in clinical practice to know necessarily, well, what should we switch to? Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Fortunately, we do see, you know, at least partial clinical responses in women who receive new adjuvant chemotherapy, but there are those few women who we do actually see the tumor just laughing at what we're giving with them. The problem is right now we don't know what the second best drug should be. Well, the other thing, and we've talked a lot on this series about neoadjuvant therapy of HER2-positive disease, obviously that's a huge issue, but there, one of the things that strikes me is if the patient has residual disease after you give neoadjuvant therapy, they can go in the NSABP trial looking at TDM1, a new agent, a lot of excitement. Unfortunately, we don't have anything maybe as exciting in triple negative disease or ER-positive HER2-negative disease, but you know, if there were some kind of agent or trial that could be looked at in that setting, to me, that'd be another reason to maybe try neoadjuvant therapy. Yes, I agree. If there is a trial and something that we can learn to potentially, you know, advance the science, advance the field, we should certainly be going in that direction. Well, I'm also thinking about the patient themselves. I mean, to me, if I've got residual disease after chemotherapy and anti-HER therapy, I mean, I like the idea of trying something different because we know it's not going to be that great if we go with the standard approach, but it's just a medical oncologist talking. Let's talk about another scenario you brought up here, the 40-year-old woman screen detected, two centimeter, clinically node negative infiltrating tumor that's ERPR positive, HER2 negative. Yes, so this is a very common clinical presentation, and this would not be someone who 
NCCN guidelines would support obtaining a metastatic workup prior to treatment, but we all know that that happens. Patients are anxious and physicians will order these tests in the absence of indication sometimes. And so we'll find these patients with oligometastatic disease and then it becomes, again, a very difficult discussion to have with the 40-year-old who thought she had a small early stage breast cancer, and now you're telling her that she actually has stage four disease and that you don't really know whether she should have breast surgery or not. So again, this is an ideal patient to consider for the ECOG randomized trial. First line, she should go on appropriate hormonal therapy for her ER positive disease. And with repeat scanning, you know, four to five months down the road, as long as her bone disease has remained stable, then she would be a great candidate for randomization to local therapy or not. She could undergo a lumpectomy, whole restoration therapy, and so forth. But it becomes, you know, it is a difficult discussion with these young women where this was a completely unexpected finding and trying to get them to understand that although it may seem like an easy enough thing to do to remove the tumor from the breast, that they may not, in fact, benefit from that approach. Well, I guess from the medical oncology point of view, too, if you leave the primary, in this case, it's really going to be the only measurable lesion to assess therapy. She's got a bone met. And it also is, you know, it's a specific part of what you were talking about before in terms of people presenting with stage four disease in terms of being oligometastatic and kind of ties into what I was asking you before. Again, I hear about these cases in the community and docs look at this situation and go, well, let's go for cure. Should even if there's the patient, she didn't have any pain in the bone met, should you radiate it? Should you take out a rib or a piece of bone? Do you take out an isolated liver met or, you know, RFA it? Obviously, it's done all the time in colon cancer. What about in breast cancer? Well, I think, as you said, it it certainly is done selectively in breast cancer. There are some institutions that are more aggressive. They have their criteria for selection. MD Anderson is fairly aggressive in this setting. And there are some, as you said, some long-term survivors. But I think that, you know, we have to just be very careful because selection bias doesn't really answer the question for us. So that patient might have lived just as long if they did not have aggressive surgical therapy because if their cancer responds to the systemic therapy, that's you know truly the answer. So ER positive disease, if it responds to antiestrogen therapy, she may live just as long with that tumor in her breast as she does without it or the you know, the isolated bone lesion as they do without it. So it's hard to know really what the true impact of your aggressive local therapy is in those settings. You know, this scenario also brings back what we were talking about before about oncotype, because I'm going to say two centimeter clinically no negative. So you, you know, take it out and you have a negative sentinel nodes. I think she's getting an oncotype if she doesn't have that bone met. Exactly. Yep. But now you're not. And again, from a systemic point of view, why not? And from a biology point of view, I mean, why should it predict, you know, and that was, you know, really what we were sort of our hypothesis was in the study that we performed. But I think it's not wrong to be cautious. I mean, we see oncotype now being used routinely in the node negative setting. I think that, you know, we're seeing it being applied more in the node positive setting. And the results of the responder trial will help with that. So I think, you know, a healthy level of caution is good because we certainly don't want to miss the opportunity to cure patients or to treat patients with appropriate therapy. But I do think that drawing a line where anatomy is more important than biology is probably going by the wayside.